So I spent major part of 2019 up in the higher Himalayas shooting snow leopards and the story around it uh for for national geographic so that's where i was i was living at 5000 meters in the middle of nowhere where i've been working there to make one phone call i used to walk 6 or 7 hours because there's no phone no internet for months all together i cook my own food i live in minus 40 degrees it's very romantic for first few days for first few weeks but then when you realize that you are completely isolated you are by on uh, you are on your own and and after a while uh uh you have to figure out uh, and find better ways to deal with it because it lives with you and if you don't deal with it 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 kind of uh screws up with your mind it's not very easy uh to talk about conservation or saving species uh where majority of our population goes hungry every day i grew up in middle of a jungle where my father has a farm and and we still have tigers coming in our lawns i want to be clear that i'm not the story i'm the vessel that is trying to tell the story that was prasanjit yadav national geographic photographer and this is the wildcast And we're now on episode 15 of the Wildcast and amazing we've arrived at 15 episodes now chatting with so many different people and I'll be the first to admit really that this whole project of mine this Wildcast has been in many ways therapeutic for me um getting to talk to old friends getting to talk to a lot of these interesting people from all over the world from my network reconnecting with all of them and i think it is something that has helped me get through this whole crisis uh up to today you know this the 15th episode now and here we are we're talking to prasenjit i've known him for about 5 or 6 years now we're a member of this National Geographic Explorers. He we met in National Geographic headquarters in DC some years ago. And he's an incredibly incredibly talented photographer. He spent the last year, last 3 years or so actually photographing the snow leopard in India in the northern uh, northern part of India in the Himalayas. And we talk about the project uh shooting the snow leopard living at 5000 meters above sea level living alone and how his work has actually prepared him for this pandemic being completely isolated for months shooting the snow leopard all by himself um and we we'll talk about the whole process that he goes through um to take Uh, all these amazing photographs uh, his photographs are in this month this month's yellow border magazine he's uh, one of those few Asians that's actually broken into the yellow border and it's i'm incredibly proud of his work incredibly proud of where he's gotten to um in his professional career as a national geographic photographer he's one of those few photographers who actually started his work in national geographic you know and he talks about this during the entire podcast and 
Without further ado, here he is. Listen to his words, listen to this conversation. And thank you, everybody who's been listening to the Wildcast for the last 15 episodes. And this is going to be a permanent project of mine. And uh, listen on. Good morning. Can you hear me well? Yes, I can hear you. And how are you today? I am well. Uh, yeah, I'm as good as one can be in the given situation. So what is the situation now in India? In India, it is like the country is going through a series of unlockdowns because we were locked for last close to two months. Uh, but, but our curve has not yet plateaued. So we are still getting new cases and, and that's not a surprise uh, just because our population is so humongous. So it looks like our our uh, our cases are gonna keep increasing, but the country has to open up just because we can't stay closed forever. I think it's the same here in the Philippines. We're currently opening up slowly, and yeah. but but the thing is, uh, the the cases haven't gone down that much, but we can't afford to keep being closed really. So. I suppose minimum health standards is what uh, everybody has to do. You know, everybody's wearing a mask and trying to practice social distancing. But as you know, in both our countries, yeah. this is not the easiest thing to do with such dense populations. So, well, yeah, we'll that's, see. That's true. That's true. Same here. I mean, yeah, yeah. Now, I think government have given their enough warnings and people are enough educated uh, I'm sure there will be still be cases going on and there will still be people making mistakes. But uh, but I don't think there's any dearth of awareness anymore. So, uh, so the countries have to open up and people have to start working because uh, we have people those who are living very marginalized lives. I mean, they work during daytime and what they earn is what they eat in the evening. So they no longer can afford not working which I think uh, is true in your country as well. Yeah. yeah, same same, same in our country. And I mean, at some point, I guess the leaders are going to realize that um, it's more, more people will die of starvation than, than the disease because of the economic consequences of this. So we really need to yeah. open up. True, true that. Yeah. But tell me, how have you been? Um, I've been okay. I've been, uh, well, like the rest of the world, we've been, I think this, we have one of the longest lockdowns in the world at this point, almost three months. So, so we're, we're just slowly getting out of it, but we're, we're essentially sort of, um, how would I say it? Gotten used to being at home. We have a routine, you know, you wake up in the morning, you make your coffee, you do your exercise, and then you do the market once a week and all of that. But it does get Correct. both frustrating, just staying at home, and then you get all your news, like probably everyone else now, you get all your news from the internet, uh, which is unusual because normally you can go out and actually see what's happening in your own hometown, and <laughs> now you're stuck at home. And, and even for in my town, which is a small town, um, I'm relying on Facebook and 
the internet to tell me what's happening outside our gate. So th- that's sort of an unusual situation. True. I, uh, I started consuming a lot of news for first four or five days after the lockdown started. And I realized it's getting onto my nerves and, and, uh, and also it's too tricky to consume the right news. So over time, I've developed my own ways. That is, I'll consume news for an hour every day. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'll go to print media. I wouldn't consume any news on social media. Neither would I try and consume any news from news channels. I don't watch any news channels. It's been 10 years now because I think it's just not worth it. They create stories more than show news anymore. So I go to the websites of print media and I read it there and I have these bunch of print media that I, I feel uh, I can rely on. And right. uh, that's, that's I my think that's way a very good process right? of avoiding the uh, all the stress and frustration that comes by by just constantly hearing negativity. Yeah, especially on social media these days. It's just like one after the other and and you know it's depressing, it's frustrating. And I think it's something that, like the quarantine, it's shared around the world. You know, we're frustrated at our governments, right. frustrated at everything. It's it's really difficult. But yeah. how have you been? You know, you, I know you just came from the Himalayas. Um, yeah, coming yeah. into this. Yeah. Wow. What was that? What was what what, what were you working on? So uh, two years ago, I got a grant uh, from National Geographic to do a story on mountain goats. Uh, across Central Asia. Uh, so the project started to happen across three countries, India, Mongolia, and Kyrgyzstan. And that was the first phase of the project back in 2017, 2018. And around end of 2018, 2019, uh, Geographic asked me to shoot snow leopards for their magazine story. So mm-hmm. I spent major part of 2019 up in the higher Himalayas, shooting snow leopards and the story around it uh, for for National Geographic. So that's where I was. I was living wow, at 5,000 meters in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and, and it's hard, right, shooting snow leopards because they're not easy to find. Yeah, it's 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 like it uh, it is a extremely difficult uh, species to shoot for a couple of reasons. One, for the reason that is where it is found. It is found in these really remote high Himalayas where uh, you have to spend first 20 days just to get there. Uh, you you get there in five, six days and then you acclimatize for a week because you are moving from, from sea level or from a lower elevation straight to 5,000 or 4,500 meters above sea level. So your body has to adapt. And that's when you start walking around in these mountains. You can't drive around there in the in the snow. So you walk around and then uh, when you spend enough time, you get lucky and you start seeing these species. Uh, that's one thing. Second is just that, that the species itself is so uh, well adapted for these mountains. They can mm-hmm. camouflage really well. And you're talking about few individuals in hundreds of square kilometers. So finding a needle in a haystack is much easier than finding a snow leopard in the mountain. Uh, But over the years now, there are few pockets in the world, two or three locations, where uh, where seeing these, uh, these individuals is not that difficult. If you spend enough time, if you spend week, 10 days, 15 days, 
and be out there, uh, the chances of you seeing a snow leopard are much higher. So I was working oh, wow. in one of those locations. And and what's the process of like how do you prepare for this? You're you're you you were there uh shooting the snow leopard for what, six months or, or was it like three months? <laughs> I don't know I think how do close you prepare to six months to over there? the period of two years. Wow, that's that's a lot of time to be spending in the outdoors. And most of this time you were were you alone or did you have a whole team with you? Uh, okay, so that's the thing that uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I came back from Himalayas and I got into a self-quarantine in my home here in Nagpur in central India. And that's when I, I sent a message uh, out there just to let people know that I'm all right. And I have I had friends around the world asking me, oh, you are in self-quarantine. Are you all right? It must be so lonely. And I was like, I got this. I've been preparing for this for the last two years. Where I've been working, there to make one phone call, I used to walk six or seven hours because there's no phone, no internet for months altogether. I cook my own food. I live in minus 40 degrees. There are local people who are my friends and colleagues I work with, but there's no news from outer world most of the times. So I live in my own bubble. So compared to that, uh, this quarantine is cute because I have electricity, I have phone, I have home-cooked food, I have friends to talk to. So uh, if you ask me what was the most difficult thing while shooting this species, I don't think it was uh, it was the physical hardship. It was more of the emotional and and uh, and the loneliness driven hardship, which was more tricky to handle. Mm-hmm. So so. It's like um, the difference between being in quarantine now and and shooting your, I mean, basically shooting your your work also in isolation is quite a different thing, isn't it? It's quite a different thing, exactly. I think now uh, we call this social distancing, but I think it's more of a physical distancing because we are more socially connected than we ever were. People have time. And people take out time to talk to each other. I know it's virtual, but still it's connection. So I like to call this more of a social, uh, physical distancing and social connection. Uh, what I've That's been doing for past many years, the places where I go, it's both physical as well as social distancing. And it's uh, how much of a romantic it sounds, uh, it does get onto your nerves after a couple of months. It's very romantic for first few days, for first few weeks. But then when you realize that you are completely isolated, you are by on, uh, you are on your own. And, and after a while, uh, uh, you have to figure out uh, and find better ways to deal with it. Because it lives with you. And if you don't deal with it, it, it kind of uh, screws up with your mind. That's right. That's right. And... And like shooting, this is when we saw each other in 20, was it 2018? That, when I think we saw 2018 each other in, in, in Philippines. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were already shooting the snow leopard uh, at that time, right? And you did show a few of your photographs Correct. from that period. Can you describe like what, what the setup is, like shooting the snow leopard uh, in the Himalayas? Do you stay in a, 
in a cave or is it like some sort of uh, camouflage uh, photo setup of some kind? No, I don't live in a cave. Uh, I mean, over the last two years, there were one or two instances when we when we uh, camped uh, in the stones and all. But most of the times, I live in villages. So none of these places are are completely isolated. There are villages scattered across the Himalayan region. Uh, and and I took, uh, I moved into one of the highest villages uh, in the world. Uh, and and that became my base. And mm-hmm. the village became my family. This, uh, this village okay. is called as Kibar, which is in higher Himalayas. And an adjoining village called as Tashigang where only 16 mm-hmm. or 17 people stay, but I, I ended up becoming a part of that landscape. And mm-hmm. uh, and because I was there, uh, I started spending more and more time finding new locations, new trails where you can find these species. And uh, along with me being out there with my telephoto lenses and, and, and handheld lenses trying to shoot the snow leopard, I also started using the remote camera trap setup. So something that okay. I designed here in India, uh, of course, getting inspiration from what uh, what the stalwarts of National Geographic Photography, Wildlife Photography Division have developed and have been working on some of the best camera setups, which are used by uh, some of the senior photographers. I got in touch with them, learned from them, and I build the setup here. So what I actually do is I go up into the mountains, find the right trails where I know that these individuals do walk regularly, which are kind of their highways or or walkways. And I set up a studio there. And uh, and the studio is in a way that there are these remote triggers. So the animal, when it walks from there, takes his or her own photograph. And I could be... 10 kilometers away at that moment. And wow. that is what gave me the highest number of images because these species are not that easy to see as as, as we meant, as we spoke earlier. So mm-hmm. I had these remote camera setups across the mountain range uh, in the valley where I was working. At the same time, I was out there trying to shoot uh, the species as well as the issues, as well as their relationship with Domestic goats, mountain goats, with humans, uh, with the telephoto lens as well. Wow, wow. You know, um, many years ago, I think it was in 2006, I was, I was in Nepal for a um, for wildlife conference, in uh, an IUCN conference. And that was the first time, I remember being in that conference, and that was exactly the first time a photographer was able to take a photo of the snow leopard in in 2006 and and it was such big news you know at the time because everybody knew how difficult it was to shoot it and and this photographer spent like 6 months i think um sitting you know waiting for the camera uh, for for that opportunity to shoot the snow leopard and here you are you know like uh 15 years later um shooting it and what what has that process been for you? I mean, it's 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 probably like you, you're building on the work of many other photographers in National Geographic, and also building on your own experience. You've been there 
over the last three years, right? And yeah. and how like like how many snow leopards have you been able to shoot? Like, is it just one individual, or is it like many different individuals now that you've been able to to shoot over this this period? Yeah, so I agree that 15 years ago, the entire snow leopard photography scenario was very different. And I I, I, I guess uh, the first ever photograph of snow leopard came back in 80s, uh, which was shot, uh, which was photographed by Dr. Josh Schaller. And that was printed in National Geographic, the first ever photo of snow leopard that is known. And over the years, eventually, uh, one of uh, one of our friends from National Geographic, Steve Winter, did a story which was beautiful uh, back in 2010, 2009. And then now uh, I got an opportunity to work on snow leopards and things have changed over time as well. Uh, we uh, assume that there are more people looking for snow leopards, so there are comparatively more sightings now. Uh, at mm-hmm. the same time, their populations must have gotten better as well. Uh, we knew nothing about them 10 years ago. We knew a little bit more about them now. But that still means that we know very little. And and there is need for more research and more understanding of the species. Uh, so over the time that I spent into the mountains, I did come across many different individuals. And on top of my mind, I know that I have seen uh, seven or eight different individuals over the time, but uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if if the identification is not in, entirely correct, and and I might have seen more than ten individuals as well. Uh, definitely more than seven, uh, not less than it, because uh, I've seen females with two cubs, I've seen females with three cubs, uh, so so definitely more individuals. Wow, and. How has this, like, this new sort of fame of the snow leopard, how has it sort of affected the villagers' interaction with it? I mean, I'm sure before they, they used to think of it as a pest. It would eat its animals and, you know, kill the goats and all of these um, sort of interactions with, with domestic, uh, domestic animals. Uh, how have the villages in these high mountains in the Himalayas sort of adapted to the newfound fame, you would say, of, of the snow leopard? That, that's, that's a very interesting question. And, and, and you put it in the right way that, yeah, there was a time when most of these high mountain peoples did not see snow leopard as, as friendly because uh, a snow leopard would get into their corral and, and end up killing 10, 10 sheep in a, in a night and end up eating one, which was a big uh, economic as well as emotional loss for them. So I've I've heard stories about how people ended up killing snow leopards. And this is 25, 20, 25, 30 years ago. But over time now, people have realized that snow leopard is important and it does generate economic value. Uh, and their perception towards snow leopard is changing. But, but, I have to address the fact that is there are only maybe 10 villages around the world in across Central Asia where there is tourism happening for snow leopard. There are still hundreds of villages where there is no tourism and where there is no economic 
benefit of seeing a snow leopard because there are no tourists going there and i won't be surprised if the situation there is still the same how it was uh 20 years ago right right and i mean india being such a big country and so diverse um how do you think your your work in in particular your photographs they come out in national geographic and you've been working as a sort of conservation photographer for probably the last 10 years now how has your work sort of affected um conservation work in in india i i know you work actively in conservation in the western ghats if i remember correctly Correct. and yeah. and you've uh you've be, you've basically been shooting the snow leopard over the last um two to three years yeah and do you think and 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 you're one of the few actually one of the few indian photographers if not the only one who actually lives in india and shoots for national geographic i don't know any other um in in terms of shooting um wildlife so has this been something that has affected how the community um of india you know your your country has it affected the consciousness of people seeing that oh a fellow indian is documenting all the snow leopards and 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 actually pointing out the you know what we need to be doing for conservation through your photographs through your work has it changed the mentality of people there uh okay this is a loaded question uh but i'll try and answer it in parts uh okay. uh yes i am one of the very few people uh trying to document stories here in the country uh but that, but but i'm not the only one uh, and i'm glad okay. about it when i started out that's probably good, i yeah. was but there are many more people uh and there's a larger community that's forming up in the country and and there are younger people coming out and and dedicating their lives to <clears throat> to highlighting the conservation issues in the country and and they are becoming my uh my idols they are the one i look up to now but uh but yeah uh in a country like india where where things are not very straightforward uh and that's true probably in all the countries in this part of the world uh it's not very easy uh to talk about conservation or saving species uh where majority of our population goes hungry every day so it becomes a tricky job but i also think that it's extremely important job i don't call myself conservation photographer because i'm not i i i look myself more as a uh as a naturalist and environment uh storyteller and out of the many stories i do there are some stories which are very conservation based as well like the work i did in western ghats which was to try and save the last remaining grasslands and bring attention back to the high, high elevation grasslands and the last uh, and and the endemic species that live on then were live on these mountains was very much a conservation oriented story uh and and i think i i'm lucky i'm privileged that i have a a window which helps me look out and and tell my stories to the world and that's national geographic and uh, mm-hmm. and more than being excited about it it makes me more nervous it makes me feel more responsible that i have a a 
a privilege to be influencing huge populations around the world and I should do my job in the best possible way. Uh, I can't just go into the mountains for for 20-20 days three times and come back and tell a thorough story about this really remote and, and, and unique species living into the mountain, which is snow leopard. If I want to do it right, I would rather just move there and and forget mm-hmm. everything else and focus my attention towards this one story and towards one, uh, this one uh, one project that I'm working on. And that has been my working style over the last many years. Uh, that I start a project and I become the part of the landscape. I don't want to be uh, doing this helicopter storytelling where I come for a few days and and learn just enough that I can speak about it as well as feel that I know a lot about it. I think I start talking about the story the moment I feel like I've spent so much time and I still think there are so many questions unanswered. I think that's when I feel that uh, I'm in the right position to talk about it because I won't be giving this this peripheral answers, but I'll be putting out more questions. I, That's true. I I don't mean, know if I if really I answered your think, question, but but uh, yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's it's definitely there, and it's interesting how you talk about really preparing for the work that you do. You know, I mean a lot of a lot of photography now, as you said, is really very much helicopter photography. You you get a job, and then you go, you you shoot, and then you leave. I mean, it's it's um, it's really the nature of the work and the nature of the profession and you've taken it upon yourself basically to do this sort of long form in a way it's it's very long form because i mean you've been shooting the snow leopards for three years now this and and you've done the western gats uh project for a couple of years as well and most of your projects are sort of year-long if not multi-year projects um, one of one of the things that sort of I guess working with National Geographic affords is that they they do support long form and really sort of well researched um, projects Stories. like what Absolutely. you're doing. Uh, and how can you can you walk us through how you actually prepare for all of this? Like, do you do you do your research first? Do you bury yourself in books like throughout? Right before you go, I mean, you know, get your contacts and do your research before you go. And then, you know, can you walk us through the whole process of you right before you get the project, when you get the project, and then and then going there and actually doing the work? Yeah. So because I started out uh, with National Geographic, and I'm one of those very few people probably who started their careers with National Geographic, probably people get there by the end of their career. Uh, and 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 this has given me a positive as well as a scary side. Uh, but at the same time, my process essentially is that most of the stories are pitched by me, and there are some stories which are which are commissioned by Geographic, uh, because I'm still in my early days in 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 working with the magazine, uh, so I get get a chance of trying to pitch different stories and some of them get get shelved and some of them get accepted. So I end up pitching stories that I already feel very comfortable working on. Uh, and and I come from this, this deep research background where I spent many years working in the natural history 
research work uh, i'm trained as a molecular ecologist and i was part of the larger uh, conservation research circuit in the country so i'm i'm uh, i again feel i'm lucky that i'm well connected and i know most of the researchers working on different stories in different states and different parts of the country so uh so that has been uh an upper hand that i have that if i want to work on a species I, the chances are that i would already know the person who works uh on the forefront of that uh, trying to understand as well as saving that species so for me it's it's a matter of calling them up meeting them and and doing the research and understanding what are the factors that that needs to be highlighted and what will be the larger outer structure of the story yes of course there is a lot of research involved me reading a lot me talking to a lot of people uh building this proposal and then of course getting it getting a getting a green light to do with it and then the next phase is i always collaborate with researchers scientists and local people to do my stories i want to be clear that i'm not the story i'm the vessel that is trying to tell the story i want to be the vessel for the story and and in that way what happens is that people connect with me and through me they get to connect with the species or the issues or the or the science story that we are trying to tell uh and in doing that uh these scientists as well as these local people play extremely vital role without them i wouldn't be able to do anything uh so so i collaborate with scientists i take their help i i learn from them and after a couple of months of learning from them that's when i try and go solo and and start documenting the story the way i want okay okay and how has you you have like you mentioned you have a a degree and a background in molecular ecology yeah i've noticed actually with many national geographic photographers that a lot of you have have these science backgrounds like really deep yeah. science backgrounds which is which is like for a lot of other photographers they don't have and how has this been very i mean it it seems it's been very beneficial for you and for many other national geographic photographers to have this deep science backgrounds uh some of them even have phd's uh do you have a PhD? you have a master's degree i have a master's I mean, degree and i quit my phd yeah 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 halfway through yeah so so how important has this science background been to the photography that you've been doing okay before even i start saying there are also photographers in national geographic who do not have science background and doing naturalistic photography and 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 i've learned a lot from them as well but yes having a science degree turned out to be beneficial for me and that seems like a common theme across uh, across the naturalist storytellers and that's because the language of science is very subjective and 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 you need a a basic understanding of how and where to look for research and how to decipher it and understand it in a in a easy to understand manner and and that's where i think having that basic science background did come very handy to me uh because of my upbringing which was mostly in the countryside not in the cities i grew up in middle of a jungle where my father has a farm and and we still have tigers coming in our lawn so so i kind of grew up there so i already had that comfort level of living in in the forest as well as understanding 
uh, how to how to navigate around in jungles. Uh, then my research background gave me that that little bit of upper hand of of being able to decipher the complicated language of science uh, and and understand what what it means. Uh, of course, it also helped me get really good connections around the world. Uh, and and then when I got into storytelling, that's when I started learning photography because I knew that these two things that I have already, which is me being comfortable in the wilderness, plus understanding the ecology of it by reading a lot. And uh, these two things, if I couple with visual storytelling, I would be able to... Uh, to contribute into science in a different uh, and a unique way, which is still what I'm doing. Okay, it's it's interesting that you talk about your your background. You know, living sort of in a, a more rural setting. Um, how how did this lead to? I mean, where you are now. I mean, obviously, you've gone a long way uh, from that setting and. From the, I think I've seen some photos of your farm, and it is in sort of like a forested area. Um, and how how do you think this has led to the life that you're living now, and and the passion that you have? Yeah, I think I'm blessed, uh, and and I'm not being humble. I'm being honest here. I think I'm blessed that that I had it. I had an opportunity to grow up where I grew up. Uh, and and how much ever I tried to come back into the mainstream, I realized I was I I wasn't part of the mainstream. I was part of the parallel stream where I lived in isolation and came back and told the stories of those jungles to the mainstream. And and uh, and it took me a while to accept it. Uh, first there was denial and then there was acceptance and that acceptance kind of sealed the deal uh, and that's what I'm still trying to do I grew up in isolation in jungle then I moved into some of the busiest cities in the in, in, in the country trying to fit myself into this framework of, of mainstream and realize I'm not carved out for mainstream and then I went back into what I would call my comfort zone, but this mm-hmm. time I wasn't there just to live, but to understand and come back and help the mainstream understand this 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 uh, isolated world. Uh, and I think where I grew up has played a vital role in it. It has built me the way I am, uh, and and I think that comes across in the work that I do as well. My I don't think I can hide my personality from the stories that I tell. And uh, I have had people coming and telling me, you are exactly what we thought you would be. Uh, wow. You speak only when you when it is needed. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, oh. sure. <laughs> well, I think that's a compliment. <laughs> and uh, this is something probably a lot of people would be interested in. I mean, how did you get your start? in National Geographic. As you said, you know, you, you're one of those few photographers who started their career already working for National Geographic. There's very few in the world, even not, not geo photographers, who started that way. And you're one of those, those few photographers. I know you had this extremely popular meme photograph of a green meteor <laughs> um, above 
was it, it was it above bombay uh, in... no it was uh, it was in the western ghats uh, but that was later i think that was uh, later i think i got plugged into national geographic uh, because of our common friend rebecca martin rebecca martin for those who don't know rebecca martin is is uh, is the person who started young explorers program in national geographic 10 years ago yeah, and she's the uh, explorer in chief of she was making like, many yeah. many things happen <laughs> yeah and the first ever person who who was ever given a grant under this young explorers program was you so it was you, me yes. yeah you, so so rebecca and you you guys have 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 paved the road for people like me and i really appreciate that and i would always be grateful for you guys if you wouldn't have done a good job <laughs> probably there <That's> wouldn't <laughs> be a young explorer grant program and and probably i would never have received a grant wouldn't have gotten a chance to come to washington dc where we met for the first time during the explorers meet wouldn't have gotten a chance to show my work there they wouldn't have taken me seriously so it's mm-hmm. it's a domino effect and and what rebecca did and rest of the national geographic uh did uh they put their uh their trust in you and you delivered and and that's the reason why they started this program called as young explorers which is now called called as early career uh program and i got a grant back in 2014 and i think i was the first ever indian to get a expeditions council grant to do photography and i worked which was supposed to be a six months project i had dedicated like one and a half two years into it and this is uh, the western ghats which is the western ghats story the sky island story and then i got an opportunity to come to dc and i remember i shelled off all my life savings to buy myself a ticket i flew there and 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 that's when i got my first foot in the door i met them in person uh, the people in geographic saw that there's this young kid who 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 does decent photography tells stories from india which are not about tigers taj mahals taj mahal and temples uh, so i had something new to offer and they wanted something new to see so it worked out well at the right time uh i had good good friends who were pushing uh me up there who 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 were watching for me like anand verma who's a very close friend there's gabby there's claire and a very these, good photographer as well yeah these are my friends who who would watch for me and 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 slowly uh one thing led to another and after that first trip to dc i have i've been constantly on a roll and and uh i've been lucky that i i keep getting projects and and i think that's how i got started uh that first time i got to go there show some of my stuff and they were like okay this is a person we would want to invest our time and energy into uh they started giving me inputs they uh, national geographic magazine sent me for photojournalism workshops uh and yeah so uh it has been a long uh but at the same time extremely fast journey because i think the last 5 years of my life are complete blur what happened 3 months fast, ago seems it? like few <laughs> years ago what happened few years ago seems like last week so that's where i am now wow that's and and having these sort of peer i was talking to laurel about it and having sort of these peers who you look up to like anand and rebecca and, and all of these talented people that has been 
like even for me, for myself, being part of this network has been very, I think, beneficial to my own work and my own growth. And and I mean, I credit being part of a network like this of like-minded people um, to for the growth that I've been able to do for the last 15 years. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, Laurel is one of them. Hannah is one of them. These are the people I really look up to because they are, although they are not doing the work I do, but they are doing the work they do in the best possible manner. And I think that's inspiring. And and these are this is a community as well as friends who understand what you're going through and they are they take out their time to be around uh for you if and when needed and and yeah. i think rebecca martin has played a very vital role in forming this community and right now i feel comfortable that if i reach out i would have friends around the world in most of the countries uh because of this larger community that is that has formed that is the explorers community and it's it's still growing and i think national geographic please uh takes it extremely seriously as well as uh help us grow in our own way uh, yes definitely definitely i was talking to yannick um you remember yannick right um, course, this yeah. morning from from nat geo asia and and he we were discussing about how where where essentially the grant program would be going and how we're responding to this new situation for the world. But but one of the things that stood out for me is that there are so many people now in that explorer community and so many talented people that we can draw insight from, work with, and also just be inspired by. Absolutely. I think that's true. Uh, uh... There are explorers, those who are researchers, there are explorers who are musicians, dancers, photographers, videographers, storytellers, linguists. So so I don't think we have to look outside. We just have inspiration so much loaded just in the community. I think it's a matter of how to how to spread it out of the community. And that's that's going to be challenging and that's going to be the most impactful work that we can do as part of this community. Right, definitely, definitely, and and I think I don't know if you you have this feeling, but uh, Laurel also mentioned it that being part of this group, I mean, without it, normally you would feel like sort of the odd person in the room in your community. You know, you're you're that oddball <laughs> that <laughs> that in the community is a little weird. But then when when you when you when you come into this Nat Geo Explorer group, oh. I'm part of this whole group of oddballs who are doing interesting things. And it's sort of nice to be part of that. Absolutely, absolutely. The first time I met uh, Laurel was the same time I met you. And, and All right, trust me, right? when I came to, to the Explorers Fest back in 2015, for the first time I felt that I belonged there. When I walked into National Geographic, I did not, I, I've never felt so much at home. Uh, in any city around in the world, but 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 in the National Geographic headquarters, because I could be me, and people would still appreciate that. At the same exactly. time, uh, I wasn't appreciated because I was a clown there. That oh, that guy is interesting. He does weird stuff. Let's know him. It wasn't that. It was like oh, we all do weird stuff. We are all obsessed about our own things. So so let's give respect to each other and let's appreciate and let's figure out a way to help each other do what we do the best. 
Exactly, exactly. And I, 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 I'm quite uh, privileged to be part of this community. Mm-hmm. And like working for National Geographic for the last five years, what's the most interesting assignment you've done? Um, you think you've done? Uh, I think more than assignment, it's the kind of life that I lived. Uh, mm-hmm. One evening, I would be sitting in a remote village in northeast India under a five feet by seven feet hut, uh, which is leaking entire night. And next morning, I'll t- take a flight. And by end of the third day, I would be living in Shangri-La, giving talk to hundreds of people about my life in the northeast India. And I think that that kind of extreme difference life that I've been living is quite interesting. Uh, from project perspective, I think uh, I got opportunity to work in Mexico with Anand on, on spectral bats. That was fascinating. I worked in, in Mongolia and Kyrgyzstan with this amazing team of researchers from Snow Leopard Trust. I think uh, my 20 days in Kyrgyzstan were, was, was one of the high points in my exploration life till now. Uh, while working in Northeast India, Western Ghats. So I don't, it's it's difficult to pinpoint one moment. I think everything has its own uh, own, own uniqueness. It's interesting though that you mentioned that, that sort of contrast between, you know, living in a hut or, you know, staying outdoors and shooting a snow leopard or living in this four by four square uh, living space and then suddenly living in the Shangri-La the next day it's I think it's something that's shared by a lot of people in our field who who spend a lot of time outdoors spend a lot of time in really remote locations doing our work and then suddenly you're in front of a hundred people um, giving a talk and, and and sharing what you were just in one day ago yes yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's definitely something. Um, and like, what what's like? Uh, what is a uh, what is your gear bag like? What what do you have in your gear bag? What typically, if you're if you're going out for a shoot, I know you use the f stop bag. I've seen you use the f-stop <laughs> yeah, bag. yeah, yeah. So, so that's <laughs> that's all now. When I started out, I had one camera, two lenses, which I bought by saving my stipend money while doing my research for two years. So it was very straightforward then, one one sling bag. But over the years now, uh, my gear has grown. And that's the thing about natural history photography versus photojournalism, uh, that that uh, as a natural history photographer, most of my stories are extremely gear heavy. It's all about, uh, about photographing species using technology, not just by handle cameras. Because you want to get these intimate images of species, and you can't do it with your long lenses. You have to, you have to be one with the landscape, and then you have to figure out ways of finding uh, uh, trolley cameras versus remote cameras, and lot of lot of hidden cameras, and all of that. And that that puts you in a very awkward position. But at the same time, that's important. Uh, so over the years, my basic kid gear is that f-stop bag which has two cameras and bunch of lenses and flashes and hard drives and everything packed into into that one bag and that's that's my go-to bag but that bag 
is coupled with at least 10 other bags which are full of other camera gear from different brands. I don't have any brand loyalty because for one, one assignment, I might need a lot of macro kit. For another assignment, I might need a lot of remote kit. So depending from assignment to assignment, uh, I end up uh, using different camera gear. Not that I own all of it, not that I have to buy everything. Many times I get supported by National Geographic. So they send these belly cases get full of gear for that specific assignment. And they know that I'm doing this just for six months. So no point in pressing investing $25,000 or $30,000 in building this gear when they have it sitting in the headquarters. So I can just use it and give it back to them. Right. Makes sense. Um, the the second grant I got from that geo, they sent like a bunch of gear as well. And yeah, and yeah you, I mean, it, it makes sense because you're only using it for, for a short period of time. But listening to the amount of gear you have it sounds extremely heavy <laughs> it's like it's not a, like a light pack of gear yeah. so right now just before the covid started as we spoke i was in the himalaya and i got evacuated out of there i i, I got asked to leave as soon as possible and 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 it would have taken me more than 10 days to retrieve all my camera traps which were set up in different remote areas in the mountains so I just left all of it there. So I have like two vehicles full of camera gear sitting wow. in the in a remote village in the mountain somewhere right now. And and I'm waiting for, for the borders to open up so I can go and retrieve it back. But and that's is, how is it this, is. Is um, this vehicle with somebody? Is it like being Yeah, it is it is with, okay. with, with our team and it's it's been taken care of. It's 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 not wow. in the middle of nowhere. Two vehicles um, of camera gear. <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, and you need that kind of stuff when you're shooting these really difficult to photograph species out there. Uh, oh, for sure. And, and, and you need that technological advancement to get the photos which are not been taken before. Exactly. And you have come back with those photos. I have seen some of them and they're pretty amazing. Thanks. Um, thanks. What is... What is the most interesting thing to happen to you on assignment? Is there something that in particular, like an interesting incident that happened to you on one of your assignments in these areas? Uh, interesting thing. I think there's always something interesting happening. A uh, major part of field work is far from being romantic. Uh, it's just sheer hard work. It's just finding right motivation every morning. Uh, fighting with your own uh, own struggles. You have spent like 20 days and you do not have even a single photograph. You have days which go in and out and you, you come back with nothing. So it's it's a lot of, uh, lot of convincing your own mind. It's a lot of conversation with yourself and trying to find that self-motivation to keep at it. Uh, and that makes even the smallest of the things very interesting at times, uh, mm. at times, the most interesting thing is that, oh, it's been 10 days, there's no power, I'm figuring out ways to to charge my equipment, and suddenly the power comes back. And then you are like, mm. oh, I don't know when it is going to go back again. I This is really interesting. I have time now to charge everything that I want to, and that's when you, what you get at. Uh, then there are times when you spend weeks and you have no sighting of the species and suddenly when you are not looking for it, it comes and stands in front of you. Uh, wow. 
And there are times when you are least prepared and you get the most interesting and the most fascinating image that 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 kind of plugs into your larger story narrative. And I think those are the things that uh, uh, that one is constantly waiting for, uh, mm-hmm. but you can't engineer them. Like the meteor picture, uh, it exactly. was never planned, it was never engineered, uh, but uh, you just keep working hard. And as they say that the luck favors the one who's working, so you get lucky. Definitely, definitely. Um, if there's, there's like, I know you, you work on pretty much your own proposals. Mostly, it's your own proposal, your own project proposals. Is there a particular photo or like a story project that you would like to do? Uh, I mean, if you had unlimited funds and unlimited sort of resources and access what's like the the dream story project for you huh uh there are a bunch of them to be very honest that is what i kill most of my time into when i'm by myself half of my life goes into daydreaming and it i don't know if it is right or wrong but even now a lot of my life is is by myself and daydreaming, and many times I do dream about doing these these really big classic projects where there's no funding restriction, where there's no uh, no restriction for 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 access and everything. And uh, and yeah, I I I want to do this one project on color, uh, more color. of abstract com, uh, abstract more than abstract, more of a concept based story. It's still in my list. I am still trying to pull uh, and doing my research for it, but I want to do something about evolution of color and how color evolved in the natural world in different parts of the world and and how uh, and for what reasons. Wow, that that sounds really interesting, especially coming from India where I mean, it's so colorful. <laughs> it's such a yeah, colorful yeah, country. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, and, I would want to start with with India, but of course, uh, because there's no limit for the amount of money I can get, <laughs> right. I would I would like to expand it and 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 contrast it with with what I find here in the country with other parts of the world. Right, and you would be like, for instance, like tracing down like where they would make indigo when going through the rabbit hole from you know, the fabric down to the farmer or something like that, I suppose. In, I mean, that's one project. way of uh, of doing it. The other way is to essentially understand it from the evolutionary point of view. And I think that's where I would want to start. Mm. The, the so fact from the that animals, why did the, colors the came into, into existence? Ah. Uh, why is our world not black and white? Or, or I mean, black and white is also color, but why why do we have such vibrant colors out there and and starting from there all the way to their applications all the all the way so so of course it's a very vast topic and and it i don't see it as one story but series of stories uh it will become and each series will become a chapter in the larger narrative that one is trying to tell but yeah i think oh. that's 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 uh that's brilliant that's one I mean, that's... of the dream projects that i have Maybe not the first one I'll embark on, but yeah, that's something I would love to do at some point. Wow, that's a brilliant story. And I know, you know, a lot of photographers now look up to you um, as 
as their idol, as the as that person who's actually made it in in this career. And what what is something that like advice that you can give for aspiring photographers who want to follow in your footsteps, who want to to start shooting wildlife or the outdoors or you know the wildlife photography? Yeah, at this point, the first thing that probably comes to my mind is there's no no such thing as you have made it uh, because every after every sometime you have to start from scratch. Every story starts from scratch. So, uh, so yeah, I think uh, in this field, it's always going to be unstructured and you always have to be on your toes to keep moving ahead. The second thing I would tell is remove all the romantic notions that you have about this field. Uh, not that there is no romance in it. Of course, there is. But it is a small part of the larger hardship that is surrounded by it. But there's always a solid amount of satisfaction that comes to you at the end of all the hardship that, that you go through. The third thing I would say is that be obsessed. Don't get into this if you're not obsessed about what you're doing. Uh, somehow this word obsession is taken in a very negative connotation, but I believe that every person I'm closely friends with right now are obsessed on some other the thing. And that obsession need not be about the th- about my uh, uh, related to my work, but still they are obsessed. And I think no good thing has come out until people have been obsessed about the things that they have been doing. So find a story, find a project, find an issue, find something that you feel extremely passionate and obsessed about, something that that would that would keep you awake at night, and then just start working on it. I think that is what is going to to be the key for key driver for the good work that you will do eventually. Oh, thank you, thank you so much for that. And I think with that, it's pretty much a good place as any to sort of end this conversation of ours. Um, thank you, Prasenjit, for giving me Thanks the time and, and of course, sharing, sharing your passion to all of us. Um, I learned a lot. Um, your insight is, I think, I mean, your insight is much older than your, your young years. I mean, you're much younger than I am, but your insight is definitely, um, it's definitely something that will help other people uh, get through. I mean, the advice you're giving here is something that's very valuable for, not just for photographers, but for people. I mean, for for life at this point when everything is so uncertain. So, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. And, and, and you are one of those people with whom I don't talk every every now and then. But I still feel extremely connected with, and and I'm glad, and and I'm I'm I'm, I'm really grateful that you you call me on 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 your podcast. So there we have it. That was Prasenjit Yadav, and catch his work on the National Geographic Yellow Border magazine this month, this July. So it's July now. It's about five months after the start of this whole pandemic for the rest of the world and here I am at home producing the 15th episode of the Wildcast and I would really like 
to take this time to thank everyone who has been with me for this journey, been with me in the last 15 episodes of producing this wildcast and listening to the conversations we've had. And we're going to have so many more conversations in the next few episodes, so many more interesting individuals, people who inspire me, and I hope they will inspire you. Next week on the Wildcast, we have A.G. Sanyo. He's a really, really good friend of mine, climate activist, and really great person altogether, actually. He paints dolphins for a living. He's, he's actually one of those people who survived Typhoon Yolanda in Tacloban. He almost died there. And he talks about this whole process that brought him to climate activism, brought him to painting thousands of dolphins all over the country. And this was a conversation that I really look forward to having. And we share so many so many things uh, between him and me that it's a little bit of a long conversation actually so I'm looking forward to all of you hearing this conversation with AG next Wednesday on the Wildcast <laughs>